1: Everybody, and Welcome to episode 503 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. Uh, just Adam for a real quick intro here before we get into the, the episode, which is an interview we did with our good buddy Marie Benedict. Uh, we did a live Zoom event last week that a bunch of people came to to discuss her new book, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie, all about the 11 days where Agatha Christie disappeared um, and then never really talked about it. And she um, claimed, I believe, amnesia was the reason Uh We get into her wonderful new book, which comes out later this month. Um, But for people who might be recently new to the podcast, Marie Benedict has come on every single year around this time to talk about her fabulous books. Uh, We started with The Other Einstein, and we talked last year about um, the book about Lady Clementine. Um, We talked about The Only Woman in the Room. Uh, She's just, she writes these fantastic books about women who deserve uh, a little bit more spotlight than perhaps they were given uh you know previously. So we had a lot of fun. Um, we took a lot of questions from the audience as well. And yeah, that that's what this episode is. It's uh it's us talking to our good friend Marie Benedict all about her, her new book, um The Mr. and Mrs. Christie Wanna thank SourceBooks um for once again helping us coordinate everything. Um, and also we have a co-worker here named Sydney who just she does all the behind the scenes things for all of these lab events we do, and she's a rock star. So, I just want to give her a special shout out, too. Okay, that's it. I'm not going to wait around any longer. I hope you guys enjoy this really fun conversation with the fabulous Marie Benedict on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Uh, hi, everyone, who has already joined us. Uh, my name is Adam Sokol. I'm one half of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast with Joe Grunewald, who is on the screen as well, either next to below or above me, Uh, we host the professional bookchairs podcast. We do Mondays and Thursdays, so two episodes a week. Every Monday, we do an author interview. Every Thursday, we do book recommendations and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, So you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Monday's episode will be this, so you can listen to it twice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Today, so we were joking a little bit before we came online uh, for all of you to see us. Normally, we have a yearly tradition where Marie Benedict the wonderful, fabulous author of Carnegie's Maid and the other Einstein and all sorts of fun things. She always comes to Cleveland and does a part of her library tour in Cuyahoga County where our office is located. And for like, what were we like four or five years now? I think four Four,
2: years. Four years, yeah.
1: Yeah. Usually around this time of year, Marie comes and visits us in the office, and we have fun, and we do exactly what we're going to do today, which is talk about your latest book. But this time we can't be in person, but we do have lots of friends joining us, so there's that.
2: That's fun, something new. But I miss you guys.
1: We miss you. We too. miss
2: you too. I'm so sad to not be in person today, but I'm delighted to be here with you and part of our like annual get together.
1: Our little annual get together, yeah. Um, so Jill, do we want to start asking some of our questions or should we do the trailer first? What do you think we should
0: do? I mean, we should talk about why we're all here, which is Marie's new book. So tell us about your new book, Marie. (laughs) Well,
2: you guys have been with me through so many women, so many historical women. And today it's about somebody we probably have all heard about. Usually my women are unknown historical women and today it's probably somebody a lot of your read, your listeners or readers um, have read. That's Agatha Christie. The book is called "The Mystery of Missus Christie," and it's the story of her disappearance um, in December of 1926, um, when she was a young author on the rise. Right? She just finished her th- published her third book. Um, she mysteriously disappeared. And for 11 days, um, no one could find her. The largest manhunt in England's history was launched to try and find her and um, to no avail. And then on that 11th day, she just as mysteriously disappeared, uh, reappeared as she had disappeared. Um, And um, I have, sorry about that guys. I have always been intrigued by Agatha. I've loved her since I was a kid. But I have to say, um, when I learned about her, um, her disappearance, I became even more intrigued about her. And I realized that even though I knew her as a writer, I didn't know her as a person. And once I dug a little deeper, I thought she had her, this story was really a pivotal one for us to understand how she became that, you know, really legendary author that she is. That was a little long-winded, but anyway, that's generally what it's about.
0: I remember um, uh, you, yeah, well, you like you told us about this maybe the last time you were in town. You were like writing it, and both of us are huge Agatha Christie fans. We got very, very excited.
1: <laughs> so excited. We were like, we were like, Can we talk about that? And you're with the time you couldn't yet, I think. And
0: it's
2: like, we I think it was sort of like church. Clementine Churchill back then. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, like you guys, huge Agatha Christie fan, huge.
0: You know, and I have. Before
1: guys, we get too far, Sorry, I had to cut you off. Margaret from Sourcebooks wants to make sure we, we tell everyone why we're doing this today because this is a very special anniversary, correct?
2: Right, this is. This is the date of her disappearance. Yes. I mean, obviously she didn't disappear today. She disappeared today in nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's not a typical anniversary that you celebrate, but we're certainly marking the occasion on this very special day. Um, But I like to think of this day as like the beginning of Agatha as we come to know her through her books. Um, In many ways, it's the beginning, I think, kind of of her rebirth as as a person, um, as a woman, you know, really shackled by a lot of constraints of her time period. And without giving away too much of the book, um, this is part of her way of breaking free. Is that too much of a spoiler? I don't know.
1: I don't think so. I think so. In fact, I was laughing. I I told you, like, I normally when we're with you, we don't, like, prepare a super ton of questions because we all just get along really well. But I wrote a few out just to be careful, just because in my mind I was like, all right, I want to write some questions out that aren't too spoilery because it's like, there's so much, you sort of peel back. I want to tell everyone, by the way, I, before I forget, Cindy's going to yell at me if I don't mention this. If you guys want to use the Q&A section, oh, she just slacked it and wrote that. If you want to write in questions for Marie... In the Q and A, we will get to some of those later. Um, I wanted to mention that, but it is the the book. Every chapter you read, it's like you kind of learn a little bit more of the story. And so I was like, okay, how does how does one ask questions about a book that's entirely a mystery? You know. <laughs>
2: And I mean, it's, you know, this book and writing it too, you know, structuring it the way I did, it's a little bit different than some of my other books, you know, all my books are, you know, kind of that deep dive into a woman's um, really intimate emotional life and kind of exploring almost like her origin story, how she came to be this incredible historical figure who really left a huge legacy for us, right? Um, but this book, because she's—they called her the queen of crime. She's a queen of mystery. I felt like, how could I write a book about her and not have it be, like you said, a mystery unto itself? Because really, at the core of her life, from the point—it's—it's it's this pivotal point, but it's also the core mystery in her life. And so, how could I have written it in any other way? Although that was so daunting. Like, how do you write a mystery? about the queen of mystery and not feel like totally intimidated by that process. So I did my best, um, but you're right. As we're in some ways, one of the stories is very much like my books, right? One of the stories is kind of Agatha's origin story, who she was, who she became, the kind of pivotal moment in her life that I kind of feel like gives her wings in a way um, to to become this this formidable talent that we all know and love. but then spliced into that origin story is the mystery itself, and um, and hopefully, hopefully, I do her justice. It's it's a hard, hard topic to write
0: about. Yeah, no pressure there. <laughs> no, no pressure.
2: I just love her so much too. And the more I came to know about her and who she was and who she became, the more I just fell in love with her as a person too.
0: Well, I do actually want to ask a little bit about your research process because you know. Obviously, when you write about these real women, research has to be involved, but there's a lot about her disappearance that even now in 2020, we don't really know. So how, how did you go about developing the story where there's like a big chunk of it is still kind of unknown? That's such a good question. And I really feel like that unknown really had in a way,
2: I felt like it was an invitation me personally to write, write a new story. It's like, how can we not know? We've got to fill it in. But just to back up a second, I mean, I think, you know, with all of my women, um I, I'm all about their original original source material. So things that they've written about their lives, letters, journals, um things if if I don't have that, then things that people who knew them contemporaneous with that time period wrote about them. And then if I don't have that, I kind of cast my net wide and really look much more broadly at the sort of micro, macro historical context. What's really interesting about this particular story is Agatha Christie wrote an autobiography, right? Which I totally invite anybody who's never read it to read it. It's rambling, (laughs) It's, it's not chronological, it's total stream of consciousness from this magnificent woman I think she was in her seventies or eighties when she wrote, I mean, she's really at the end of her life. Um, And there's actually an audio recording that goes along with it. So I, for you guys, I mean, it's amazing to hear her voice. Right. Um, But the one thing she doesn't discuss, she discusses the clothes and food she wore or as, as you know, in her youth, she does not talk about her disappearance. And so it's kind of into this gaping black hole that I kind of put a lot of the story. And um, so, you know, when I think about my research, you know, I think about it kind of as the architecture of the story and it's in those gaps that I kind of fill in. Well, all I had right here at the center of the story was the gap. And so to fill it in, I kind of used what I often use in those gaps, which is kind of a mix of the research and and sort of that deep understanding I've come to have about the woman herself, you know, through her letters, through her writing, through her interviews, um, and the things about people who knew her said. And I kind of sort of extrapolate from that to fill in that gap. And for me with this particular story, I mean, the gap was so huge, right? I mean, we have 11 days that we don't know anything that happened and some time leading up to it too. And after, but um, I felt like I had come to know this brilliant woman, you know, this woman who wrote plots that people could not unpuzzle, right. Who created masks for characters that, that no one could see behind. How could she have been a victim in her own vanishing? How could she have, how could she have just, disappeared by someone else's hand other than her own. So kind of all those things that I came to know about her informed that, that big black hole that I kind of wrote into.
1: You talked a little bit about like, you know, what was available to you from a a sense of, she's a, she's a, the type of figure who that she was well known. And you said like written about during her life. So obviously those assets were available I imagine like Hedy Lamarr was probably a little bit similar that you could find things about her but oh, totally. wonder, uh, whether it's like letters or things for, for Agatha Christie like is are there things in t- when you have to go like discuss with the author's estate or like people who have a direct contact with that type of stuff and then when do they provide those for you
2: you so in this case um her family had actually put together a lot of really interesting things that were available they're very private and they don't let a lot out um just in general and that's fairly well known but they have especially her grandson put together some really wonderful things about her life so at part of the book um one of the events that takes place that's not a spoiler is this magnificent um the world tour really that she and her husband, um, Archibald Christie went on when their daughter uh, Rosalind was very young when she was two. And it was to benefit, it was to promote really this big expo that they were having in England. And they went around to all the countries affiliated with um, Great Britain and her, one of her um, family members put together almost like, I don't want to say it's a scrapbook. It's much more elevated than that, Mm -hmm. but it's, letter excerpts, photographs, um, all sorts of wonderful little pieces of information about that tour. Um, and so from something like that, you can really fill in a lot of gaps in her own. Of course, we have our autobiography. There are some letters that are available. Um, but I will say after this event happened, it got tricky because she the person that she was before the event is a very different person than she became later in her life. So the person that you know, you know, pictures of that was interviewed when she became famous. Because remember, at the time of this book, she's she's not famous. I mean, she's on the rise. She's an established, starting to become known author. She had just published the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is super important, I mm-hmm. think. For it is, yeah. Time. It's am you a know, quintessential unrivaled narrator story. You got to tell me that's a coincidence, right? And then she just. <laughs> Um, so you know, you have you have this per- the before and the after that she becomes very reclusive. But before she's a woman, you know, who one of the first Western European women who learns how to surf. I mean, mm-hmm. she was this huge personality. And that too kind of informed the black hole. So um, you know, you have to work with the restraints on the original source material. Um gather what you do have and what you can access. And there's an additional source in writing this book that's different than any other book I've written, and that is her books. You know, authors put a lot of themselves. I'll let you read the tea leaves on that one. They put a lot of themselves into their books. And Agatha is no exception. Thing she is processing things that are going on in her own life in these books. Like a case in point She wrote um, this wonderful book. You guys have probably never read it. It's really early. I don't even know if it qualifies as like a straight up mystery, but it's called The Man in the Brown Suit. And it's one of her first books. She wrote it when she was really young. Um, I think it was serialized and then maybe put into a novel form. And you see in that book, in this sort of hopeful, innocent, romantic perspective, the person that she really was in those early years and you can derive a lot of that. And then as her, as she gets older, her books become more complicated. You start to see some of the themes that she's dealing with in her own life in those pages. So, you know, gosh, darn it. I had to do a lot of reading of Agatha Christie novels to actually put together her story. Um, But yeah, I mean, you have, it's, it's really interesting the, the way, you know, looking at her and looking at her through the lens of her own work as well.
0: For you, having to read all of her books for research—it was such a hardship. And I really,
2: I almost (laughs) gave it up because I had to, you know, read a whole bunch. Several I had never even heard of before. You know, you think you've read them all, and then I came across this gem in like a in a flea market sale recently. Not recently, eight months ago. You know, all these books that you think you know, and then there's always another. And she did so many wonderful serialized novels and, and short stories. And of course she had a whole series of books she wrote under a different name.
1: Yeah, there's the the short story collections. Like I even, I'll even find them, I'll pull up Libby and I'll be like, I've never heard of any of these. And it's like, I like that they always put like some Miss Marple, some Urku Poirot, some just like random mysteries. And you're never really, like, I very much enjoy. It. it's almost like an Easter egg when they're just like telling a story and it's like a tertiary character is Urku Poirot, oh. And I'm like, oh, that's like,
2: I, I know. Well, there he is, that. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so you talked about, and again, I, I, everything that we're going to, that I, that I wrote out is very early in your book. So it's not Mm -hmm. like a lot of spoilers, but you talked about her life and her books sort of being intertwined. So can you, she had a job during the wartime that kind of, it seemed like it influenced her work would that be fair? See I'm doing I'm doing this like very vague so I can let you say <laughs> no, as much as you want. Up.
2: I like that. What kind of day- Oh yeah. I mean, she, you know, what's interesting about and again this kind of goes to the woman that she was, you know. She um was very um open to trying a lot of different roles um in world war 1. Um you know, she grew up just to backtrack a second. She grew up in a relatively aristocratic family. I mean, they weren't titled or anything, but they were part of sort of this moneyed, connected, upper class, um, England, um, that a class that kind of disappeared when you went from world war one to world war two and things really changed. Um, but girls of her class, um, wouldn't, they didn't want to be nurses, right. Cause that was way too bloody for them. And world war one, she dabbled her hand at, at that. And she found that she had no problem with the blood. You know, she was in fact, fascinated by the amputations and the surgeries. And, and I think that played a lot into her later books, but, but I think you're talking about the role she took next, which was as a, um, I think we call it like a pharmacist, a pharmacist assistant today, mm-hmm. um, she had to receive special training for it. And back then it wasn't like, you know, we go into a pharmacy today and the, the medicines are already pre-prepared and really the pharmacist, I mean, they have an important job, but they're they're very often assembling things that are already pre-made. You no, know, they were making everything by hand back then. And there were poisons, you know, something that could be extremely helpful in a low dose, just the wrong dose, suddenly it becomes lethal. And she had to learn how to do all of that sort of medical preparation and do it in wartime, you know? So there's a ton of pressure. Um, And so she became really fascinated and knowledgeable about poisons. And it was actually during like some downtime as she's, you know, filling these prescriptions or helping, you know, filling hospital prescriptions, that um, she kind of came up with the idea for her very first story. She realized that right there in front of her on all of those shelves were some poisons that if used properly in the way she would know how, um, would be an undetectable murder weapon. And what's interesting about that, I think too, is that the idea of this book had kind of been percolating in her head for a long time. She had an older sister that she was very close with Madge, who but they were very competitive as sisters occasionally can be. And her sister kind of when a couple of years prior to that had laid down a gauntlet saying, I bet, I bet you can't write a book, um, a, a mystery novel that would be unsolvable. And so she had this kind of like jangling in the back of her head for a really long time. And as she was sitting, you know, before all of those, I like to think of those like multicolored vials, you know, that she can like concoct. She realizes that she actually could create, an unsolvable mystery mm-hmm. and that she could kind of rise up and claim that challenge that her sister told her she couldn't do. So, um, but she used that knowledge, uh, I mean, repeatedly in her novels. Um, and then of course she used it in the war effort in World War One and World War Two. She became, she worked in a pharmacy again to aid the war effort in World War Two.
1: A- la- I was just laughing because you said if, if used, if they were used properly
2: <laughs> as in opposed to our- not the way you and i would think of us yeah Uh Uh uh-huh
1: uh-huh but no it it really that did help me i i didn't know much about her personal life i just always been a fan of her her books so like and i always thought i would be listening be reading them or listening to them and be like how is she just making like the the poison stuff it's too accurate to be faked and so this makes so much more sense because like I don't know. I just feel like even researching it for your stories wouldn't give you the knowledge that she had working with it every day. It's, it's very interesting.
2: It is. And I mean, she really, I mean, she knew so intimately how to use those. I mean, cause she was, she was doling them out to people as part of her job and that information never left her. I mean, in so many of her books, she uses poisons. It's not always the case, but, um, frequently it's the case and it is sort of that perfect untraceable Um, unsolvable puzzle Um, and I love that it's that job I like to think she would have embarked on her career regardless but it's interesting to think that it was that that challenge and that access and knowledge that really opened the door and had her walk down the path of becoming this astonishing mystery writer.
1: I want to take a quick break today to talk about today's sponsors. Uh, the first one is our friends at Freshly. So, it is no secret that <clears throat> I love to cook. I absolutely love, love, love getting in the kitchen and whipping up a meal um, and doing it from scratch and, and making it healthy. And it's uh, one of the joys of life that I have. But another one of the joys I have in life is having all that time back because I spend so many hours in the kitchen when I'm not using Freshly. I cannot speak highly enough about how wonderful Freshly is in the service that they do. Um, Freshly gets it. F- good food, you know, it has to be delicious and you want it to be healthy and also easy because a lot of people aren't going to deal with food if it's not easy and they just don't want to worry about it. Um, but Freshly does this really, really cool thing. They have these nutritionists and chefs that create meals made from whole food ingredients that taste great and they're, be- they're just better for you. Uh, they do all the planning and prepping and cooking, and all you have to do is heat them up for three minutes, and dinner's done. Like I know we've talked about this in the past, but the way that these meals arrive is so cool. It they get delivered to your house. Uh, you know you don't have to worry about signing for anything. They get dropped off at your your porch or wherever you get your packages. They come in a box, and these boxes have these amazing uh, kind of like refrigeration systems. They're just like these big ice packs that are kind of malleable, and you can. Uh, They keep everything cold in there and then you can just put them in your refrigerator and you microwave everything for three minutes and you're good to go. But these freeze packs, you can keep them. I've been literally using them all year long to keep things cold. They're the best. Uh, All you have to do is you simply order online or on the Freshly app and you choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better-for-you meals like steak, peppercorn, and harvest time chicken risotto. Again, they arrive right on your doorstep. You just microwave them for three minutes and dinner's done, lunch is done. They're so good. We have been getting a number of different Freshly packages sent to Joe and I, and I've never had one that I didn't just absolutely love and adore. You can join the one and a half million satisfied Freshly users and skip the shopping, prepping, cooking, and cleanup. For a limited time, Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off their first two orders at Freshly.com slash Pro Book Nerds, you know, that's another aspect of this that I didn't mention before, but you don't have to go to the grocery store here. Everything is brought right to you. So you don't have to worry about, you know, putting your mask on and socially distancing and being nervous because there's so many people there. Freshly is going to drop everything off right at your doorstep. So again, for a limited time, they're offering our listeners $40 off their first two orders at Freshly.com slash Pro Book Nerds. That's Freshly.com slash Pro Book Nerds. Today's episode is also sponsored by our friends at GiveWell. Um, You know, recently we had Giving Tuesday, which was an international day of charitable giving that kind of kicks off the holiday season. Um, But that's not the only day that you can donate to wonderfully charitable causes. You know, this is a time of year where people like to purchase gifts for you know, family and friends, and send things to people that they know will make their day. And there's no better way to feel wonderful about the money that you're spending and be confident that your dollars are doing the most good than by doing it with GiveWell.org. For over 10 years, GiveWell.org has helped donors find the charities and projects that save and improve lives most per dollar. You know, here's how it works. GiveWell dedicates over 20. Thousand hours a year researching charitable organizations and handpicking a few of the highest impact, evidence-backed charities. This is so wonderful because you have that peace of mind where you know whether you can give five dollars, twenty dollars, five hundred dollars, you know, whatever the amount of money you can give, you know that it's going to have a massive impact on the charities that you're helping out. All of their research is publicly available for free. It's online on their website, and more importantly, GiveWell doesn't take any fees whatsoever. So all of your tax-deductible donations are given to the charity that you choose. Since 2010, GiveWell has helped over 50,000 donors direct over $500 million to their most effective charities. And most importantly, these donations will save over 75,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more honestly this is one of the things I've been most proud of about this podcast is working with givewell and knowing that the money that I am donating is going to these powerfully impactful charities you know this year support the charities and save and save lives uh, sorry <laughs> this year support the charities that save lives and improve lives the most with givewell. if you want your donation to have even more of an impact, we're asking you to act soon so any listeners who become new GiveWell donors will have their first donation matched up to $250 when you go to givewell.org slash ProBookNerds and select podcast and ProBookNerds at checkout. This matching offer is going to be good only for as long as funds last. So if you want your charitable donation to go as far as possible, go to givewell.org slash ProBookNerds and select podcast and professional book nerds at
0: checkout. So can you, you know, just sort of curious, you, you've mentioned that at this time of her disappearance, she no one really knew who she was. Like she wasn't the Agatha Christie that we know. So, um, like who was she? Like, was she like what was her life like yeah. at that time? Well, at the time she disappeared,
2: um, she was married. You know, she had served in World War One. Her husband um in World War One was a He was a decorated pilot and, you know, the, the idea of like an air force, um, was very new so that he was kind of celebrated for that. Um, they got married during the war. Um, and after the war, her husband had had, um, you know, she did what many women of that time did she stayed at home. Um, she ultimately had a child. Um, her husband was kind of struggling with, um, finding the right role after the war. I think looking back on it, he might've had some PTSD from the war. Um, he wasn't the, the easiest person to be around, very mercurial, or to put it that way. Um, and I think, so she was more or less unhappily, happily married, You know, I don't think she really realized the, the depth of, of the discomfort that was happening there. But what stayed with her from that, you know, sort of momentous occasion where she was in the pharmacy was this desire and drive to write books, mysteries specifically. And, um, right, right after the war, when her husband was looking for and and trying to find work, she actually landed her very first, um, contract with a company called Bodley head. Um, and that book was the mysterious affair at styles. That was her very first book. Um, and she didn't make a ton of money from it, but she was so like, they needed money at that time, even though Agatha was kind of from a more, um, upper class sort of, not aristocratic specifically, but higher class background. Her, fa- her father had had a tremendous amount of money, most of which was lost. They lived in a, what we would almost think of as like a mansion or like a, a castle, they called it a cottage back then, you know, in a beautiful town in Devon. Um, people didn't work. They were sort of gentlemen and ladies. Um, they needed the money. And so that her working as a writer um, was something that was very helpful to her husband and then her daughter. Um, But it all had to be smoke and mirrors. You know, she, it wasn't like she could be overtly be a writer um, because ambition was a dirty word for a woman back then. And that's really one of the very, I think, timely themes in the book is that struggling with that balance of family and, um, you know, marital obligations with personal desires and personal ambition. So she had to run a perfect household, take care of her daughter, make sure dinner was on the table. She had help of course, Um, not as much as most women of her class, but she had help and kind of right in those hours when no one was looking. And that's kind of what she was doing at this time. But her personality was very, gregarious, you know, she launched off on this round the world tour with her husband. She was really game for so many different um, activities. Her husband was more subdued than she was during this time. And so this is the kind of life that she's leading um, around the time of her disappearance without giving away too much.
1: Also without giving away too much, man, this is so hard with this book. Um, I know. (laughs) There is a letter to her husband that is slowly unfolded. I'm yes. not gonna say anything else. Yes. It's a pivotal plot point. Is that, did that letter actually exist? Like did that?
2: The, the letter itself existed, yes. So there was, okay. um, she, I think it's fair to it's okay to say there was, at the time of her disappearance, there was a communication that she might, might've left behind for her husband. And um, without saying what was in it, there was indeed a letter left. However, due to circumstances that I probably shouldn't mention, um, that letter was never destroyed, was destroyed and therefore no one really knows what Mm -hmm. was in that letter. So that's one of those sort of black hole areas that I I felt able to insert fiction. You know, as with most of my books, you know, I'm trying to honor the woman I'm writing about. You know, I feel really responsible for these women. Um, You know, Agatha Christie is known um, for her work, but she herself as a person, isn't really well known. And other than sort of this iconic figure that we think of, um, her, you know, as, as a young woman, as a person who really struggled, um, as a person who had her own issues, um, you know, it's always my fictional version of who she was and absolutely my fictional version of what happened during these days. Cause we really don't know, but the letter itself existed and that was a big deal you know, during the disappearance that oh. there had been a letter and then suddenly there wasn't. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Mm. like that <laughs> husband of hers isn't on the up and up.
2: <laughs> it would make one think, wouldn't it? It would give some, you know, very <laughs> ambitious detective pause, perhaps. I don't know.
1: I promise uh, people who are new to our podcast, we usually ask more pointed questions than this, but we like...
2: <laughs> hard. I know. You know, what's interesting about, about this whole thing is that I feel like during her disappearance, her, her husband was his own worst enemy. I think that's fair to say without giving too much up. So many things that I wrote about actually happened. And as you're writing about it, you're thinking, why on earth would he do these things? Like, are you kidding me? But they, he did. He did. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) How else to say, without giving too much
1: away. If that's how much you're going to give away, we're not giving away anymore on our end. I don't want to be the person who does yeah. that. Um, Jill, do you want to ask some of the questions that we got so far from the, the listeners? There's some really good ones here.
0: There is. Yeah. One that just came through I like is, um, so, you know, how did people know she went missing? Like, how did the story get out?
2: <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. So, What's interesting about it is I feel like in some ways, it's one of the first, it's definitely not the first, but it's one of those first instances in which the, the press and the paparazzi to a certain extent really took hold of a story and gave it wings. Um, you know, her disappearance, um, so this is not giving anything away. She um, disappeared um, late in the evening um, but people really weren't aware of her disappearance till early in the morning of the 4th. The police in her area got news of it because her car was found running on the edge of really not a cliff per se, but a very steep hill that overlooked um, a deep still lake called, known as the Silent Silent Pond. And it, there was all sorts of like legends and myths around this place. Um, you know, it was kind of a dark gloomy place. Um, Her car was actually found running in the, in the early hours of the morning. That's, this is actually like, you know, wooded area. That's why her car was found. Um, And her belongings were strewn about the area and she herself was nowhere to be found. No one knew where she went. Um, Letters, notwithstanding, um, letters left behind, notwithstanding. Um, And, you know, the, the idea of this young defenseless wife of a World War I hero, mother of a young daughter. Her daughter was about six or seven at the time. I should know that, but um, it really captured um, the imagination of the people, it just seems of the people of England. It seemed so scary and tragic and really struck people. Think if it happened to her, maybe it could happen to us. And um, and people felt tremendous sympathy. And so, right from the start, the story picked up. Among a local and then national um, reporter, uh, newspapers, uh, radios, um, and then the story spread internationally. There was an article in the New York Times about it. The fact that she was also somewhat known, of course, fueled that story. And of course, the fact that she wrote mystery novels and here was a mystery—you know—all of those things kind of played into the this. They were all sparks that gave rise to this huge flame. I mean, this was an enormous news story. It was covered around as around the clock as they got back then. Right. Um, people were staked out at their house, People wanted to participate, thousands and thousands of volunteers um, combed the area around her house, around where the car was found, that lake was dredged. And then all these reports started to come in, people claiming that that they had sighted her. They'd seen her in a variety, all these sightings. Listen to my, what's happening to my English? It's just evolving here on the air. Um, All these sightings came in um, and people everywhere had claimed that they had seen her on trains in various parts of the country abroad, never mind that her passport was found in the car. So, you know, it really captured people's emotions. And then without giving too much away, information came to light about her husband, which fueled the story even further. Um, and so, you know, this, this traumatic mystery that was happening to a mystery writer of all people, it was everywhere. And that's how um, it became known actually, I don't know if you guys, I actually should have one right here, but if you open up the hardcover of the book on the end pages, there are images of the newspaper clippings from the time period. It's like actual newspaper clippings. So you can see some of the headlines, some of the images, one of the newspaper articles is fabulous. It shows, (laughs) it's an image of her and it shows what she would look like if she had different disguises on right <laughs> there were three different disguises here's what she might look like if you see her on a train and she's I mean who who knows? Knows, you know? so it's like yeah. the kind of stuff you would expect to find in one of her own books it just seemed to me and to many others it was just ripped from the pages of one of her own novels it's just kind of irresistible yeah.
1: mm-hmm. um the tiniest of drawbacks but joe and i get advanced reader copies and they're usually like the paperback version so we don't get I the know. fun we got to one
2: with, like the, the end pages
1: we'll, we'll bug margaret i think we could probably do that i
2: feel like we could make that happen yeah
1: um somebody asked and i think it was from an anonymous person so i apologize if i didn't see the name but um there are many theories of agatha christie having a disassociative fugue state give any comments on this
2: yeah, so there have been many, many theories about what happened to her because the police never really came up with a conclusion. I mean, she resurfaced um, there and she never commented on it. There was one interview fairly close to the time that she um, that she resurfaced that came out when she very high level talked about it, but that's the only time ever. And as I mentioned, like her autobiography, nothing else talks about it. The fugue state, which is like this disassociate, from what I understand, I'm not a, an expert in it, but it's like this almost disassociative state where you're kind of not yourself. It's almost like you're operating outside yourself and it sometimes can think you're someone else entirely. I'm not discounting any of these theories by any um, stretch. I you know, I think we really don't know what happened to her. I think she was in a state of great stress and trauma at the time that she disappeared. But when I look at her, you know, I'm looking at, the women I write about, I'm always looking for women who make major contributions, right? And I'm looking for women who are dealing with very modern day issues. When I look at her, obviously her legacy is huge. She ticks the mark on that. I look at a woman who's really struggling. I, looking, I look at a woman who's struggling behind, sort of between the identity that society has assigned to her and the person that she really believes herself to be. And then there's sort of other traumas going on, which I can't Mm -hmm. say, right? Uh, Kind of all at this time. And when I look at her and I look at what she's just written right before this, and I look at who she ultimately ends up becoming, and I look at how brilliant she is and how her greatest skill is her ability to construct these puzzles that nobody can figure out. To me, it seemed the logical extrapolation from all of that information, Mm -hmm. the conclusion that I draw. Um, I'm not saying she couldn't have had a fugue state. I'm not, I'm so sorry about that. I'm not tech savvy and can't stop most of that stuff. <laughs> um, she can't, you know, I'm not saying that didn't happen. I'm not saying that there, it wasn't another pod, There's two or th- There's two or three different possibilities. And in fact, there's a movie, I don't know if you guys have ever watched it with uh, Vanessa Redgrave as Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. um, Dustin Hoffman <laughs> as a reporter. I can't remember who plays the husband in which there's a completely different very crazy explanation for what happened. Um, I write fiction, you know, so it's what I kind of envision to be the truth. And to me, it's one that's respectful of her talent and respectful of her brilliance and respectful of who she was at that time. And then who she became afterwards.
0: There's a really great comment from, um, Someone who is watching right now, and they say they read her autobiography and were mm-hmm. surprised to find out she never went to school and was educated by herself and family and friends. Mm-hmm. Some of them were famous who were in her grandmother's circle of friends. Yeah. So, first of
2: all, kudos to whoever read the autobiography. It's, it's in many ways, it's like a hoot. You know what I mean? It's You just can't even believe what, what's in it. Um, but yeah, you're right. In fact, her mother was sort of, uh, she was extremely close to her mother. And in fact, her mother had passed away. It's one of the things that happened within the year prior to her disappearance. So it's really kind of a confluence of all sorts of events happening in her life, right at once, right before her disappearance. But her mother actually believed that um, girls should not be taught to read until they were five um she didn't believe in school for girls i mean her mother was a really bright woman herself she felt like it it rushed the intellect to teach them before they were five but Agatha, of course, was extremely bright. And so she, she literally taught herself to read and like just came to her mother one day. And <laughs> Despite all her mother's intentions that her daughter not learn how to read before she was five, she taught herself. Um, and then she had some tutors, which actually was quite common at that time for girls. You know, you have to remember when you think about her education, um, it was a girl and a young woman's job during that time period in that class to get married. That was really her prime. So all the the education and training um, that she would have had was really to cultivate her into this sort of perfect specimen of womanhood um, such that she could get married and then run a home. Um, and, And again, that's sort of one of those kind of competing things that Agatha was dealing with, um, during this time period, things were really changing during this time period or starting to change. Um, and the woman that her mother kind of wanted her to be, um, was different than the woman that she really was, but yeah, her, her, her education was pretty much, um, secured of, of her own volition. That's really amazing. That's
1: so amazing.
2: Isn't it? I mean when you think about her stories and the plots and, but she, you know, I think I mentioned her older sister, Madge, um, she was quite a bit older than Agatha. Agatha was sort of like the little end child there. And um, her sister, when she was home, she got married um, quite young, but even in her earlier, like teen, young, early twenties years, she, when she would come home from being out or before she would go out for the evening, she would lay down with Agatha at bed at night and she would, they would read mystery novels together. So she kind of steeped her in this, this language of mysteries from a very young age. Um, And those kind of fascinated Agatha for her own sake, but also as sort of this competitive thing she had with her sister.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I just always keep going back to the fact that like she, wrote the first one because basically her sister said she couldn't that's just so that's so fantastic well, but
2: many have not have been done because a family member told you you couldn't do
1: that That's, that's true.
2: <laughs> a lot probably
1: yeah um
2: exception. So, uh, but yeah I mean her I think and in fact her sister was a writer as well she had written mm-hmm. um, a series of columns for Vanity Fair and then she wrote a couple plays um but it was Agatha who was obviously the literary star and I think that was that really fueled uh, Agatha for a long time, you know? I mean, they had, they had a very close relationship and her sister was very supportive, especially during this time period. But, you know, it didn't stop her from
1: keeping writing yeah. there. There is another question. Um, speaking of mysteries, I love this. Was there any idea that it might've been a publicity stunt to get her novels better known?
2: Hmm. Well, that's definitely something I've read. That's certainly another, like when I talk about one of those suppositions, I have I have read that that is definitely something that some biographers writers have theorized about. Um, I what I can't say I don't know that for sure. I have kind of my own vision of what happened. That is you know fiction of course. Um, I would say that um, it didn't hurt her sales (laughs) that she disappeared and became kind of a household name. But knowing who Agatha really was and ultimately who she became. Um, I can't imagine that that's the kind of notoriety, um, mm. that she would have wanted for herself. Um, you know, there was a lot of the, as you know, if you look at the end papers and the book, you see all these little articles, um, there's a lot of flattering and not so flattering things out there. It was really a lot of it was like tabloid fodder, Um, and that's not the kind of thing that really anybody would want written about themselves. Now, mm. perhaps it, it had a One good effect, you know, it certainly let a lot of people know who she was who might not have been familiar with her books. Um, and she was getting to be successful, but her career did take off after that.
1: 11 days is so long, that's so long to be missing. I'm like, that's I keep thinking about that. I thought about it for so long. It's like, yeah, as
2: I was writing it, because one of the as you pointed out, one of the storylines is told from the perspective of her disappearance. It's during those 11 days. I mean, it, it must have passed at a glacial pace Mm -hmm. people, her daughter, obviously her family, but certainly her husband as
0: well. Did her husband or daughter ever speak about that time?
2: No, Mm.
0: her husband, I don't want to say exactly what happened afterwards, but he kind of, I
2: think I'm sure he was desirous of fading off into the distance after this happened. And he did, you know, I think, you know, he had a business career of his own. Um, Her daughter, um, I don't believe anybody really ever spoke about it. Certainly not anybody who was friends with her or a family member of her. Everybody knew how she felt about talking about that time period. It's really forbidden.
1: Hmm. Somebody asked and this is interesting um they mentioned that uh, lisa asked you said that you write fiction do you distinguish like what you write from historical fiction because i always just say when we talk to you it's historical fiction but do you delineate between the two i'm sorry do you kind of like delineate like would you say you're a historical fiction writer or a fiction again i always just call you a historical I fiction would say, writer, I would say but...
2: historical fiction you know because so much of what i I'm, you know, interested in that my, the lens through which I kind of look at the world kind of has that the lens of the past in it. And when I go into the past and, and look at these women, I think, they're in many ways, like a gateway for us to reconsider ourselves. You know, sometimes that distance of the past allows us to to see more clearly those issues that are topical and timely to us. Um, sometimes the things are too close; people get defensive, or their sort of old tapes kind of start churning again. Um, you know, I don't know that I would want to veer from straight up. You know, from his, historical fiction. I'm so interested in in understanding sort of the arc of a woman's life and looking at it through that lens of the past. But I would call myself a historical fiction writer or fiction, whatever, you call me whatever, just read my books,
0: right? There you go, that's good, that's good. Well, sort of on that, this is a question from um, Susie in our audience. If you had to give a percentage of what part of your book is from your research and what part is what you inferred, what would you estimate?
1: Like, we ask this every time. This is like such a big us. I know, for you but
2: <laughs> I can, that is such a hard question. It's that I think it'd be impossible to answer that. Um, because you know, sometimes you have more resource material, sometimes you have less. I mean, here, for example, we have a big gaping hole right in the middle <laughs> of the story mm-hmm. that I have filled in, it's probably a lot more fiction. Um, but by the same token, I also know a lot, right? I know, especially about the days of the disappearance, I know. What the police were doing on each different day of the disappearance, um, I know. You know what kind of reports, sighting uh, reports, they were f- tracking down. I know how many people assembled to come through um, the woods around the area where her car was found. Like I know all that stuff, but do I know the conversation that happened between the police officers and her husband when she was missing? No. Mm-hmm. So when I'm doing that whole scene you know, there's a lot of facts kind of woven into the fiction. Um, the best I can describe it is what I've already said, which is it's really like the architecture. It's it's like the, the structure upon which the fiction hangs. And um, if I deviate hugely, I really try to let people know. Um, but I think when you know you're reading historical fiction and you know, I know, for example, the date on which Agatha met her husband, Archibald Christie. I know it was a dance. I know it was at a particular hall. Um, I know she found him captivating. I know they, they danced once or twice, but do I know what actually happened? What they said to each other on the dance floor? No idea. So how do you break down in that context, what percentage is fact and what percentage is fiction? Very challenging very challenging. I love to have the architecture. I love, to, I love that. Um, but I also love to imagine what they said to each other as they were dancing around, you know?
1: Well, and, and I've always loved your books because even, you know, there are parts, you're, you're telling a story, you're creating a fiction, but I'm still learning more about the lives of these people like agatha christie like i said like i've known her stories i didn't really know much about her life other than the fact that she did disappear um you know like the first you know the other einstein when we were about maleva like i knew nothing about her and um so i i think even you know when people say like oh i I don't want people to ever think like oh marie's just taking realistic things and just having fun with her own story you're still informing people about these important women who need to have the, the spotlight Thank you. I I mean,
2: I hope so. You know, I pick them because we are living every day with their legacies. And for the most part, we don't know who they are. Right. You know, certainly Agatha Christie, we know her, she's really the exception. Um, You know, we know she's a huge legacy and we know exactly what it is and she's celebrated for it. And and in fact, that fact um, almost made me not want to write the book. You know, I have a huge list of women I want to write about um, I felt like, is it fair really to write about somebody who's, who's so known, who is already celebrated, who was already recognized for what they did, mm-hmm. um, when there's so many other women who haven't been, um, but when I really looked at her life and I realized without giving away too much, what the struggle she faced, how timely that is, how, t- how modern that is, and then how she had to become an unreliable narrator of her own life, in order to move forward. And when I really thought about how often we all do that, we all rewrite our histories, we all rewrite and repackage ourselves to move through the world, I thought her story was in some ways very unusually timely um, and important in its own way. So I went for it. I did.
0: No, I think it it fits, right? Because your whole thing is about sort of those unknown stories about these women. And you know, this is like the most unknown story you could probably come up with because they're so like, there like these 11 days are just, nobody knows what happened. Right. Nobody knows. And do you see how it's an
2: invitation for me to go in there? Yes, I do. (laughs) A card in the mail. Please attend Agatha's 11 missing days and find out what happened. So, Again, we will probably never know, unless there's some hidden manuscript in some long forgotten drawer in which she details exactly what happened. um, We will likely never know what happened, but gosh, I really hope what I wrote is what happened. (laughs) I do, I do, I do.
1: Okay, wow, okay, man, kudos to everyone Listening and watching, you guys have really great yeah. questions, and then we're not gonna be able to get to all of them, uh-huh. but um, goodness, okay. Are you we always ask this too, and we can find out afterwards, but let's see if everyone else is allowed to find out now. Um, are you allowed to talk about who you're writing about next?
2: Yes, I can. Um, well, actually, I just turned it in, so it's pretty exciting. Um, I think I'm allowed to talk. I'm going to talk about it anyway, because I think it's else. I don't care. Um, I actually just finished writing a book that's going to come out next year in January about um, Rosalind Franklin. Now, you may have never heard of her. Ooh, so maybe you have. Um, she's definitely somebody who's not known or not well known at all. She was a gifted um, scientist in uh, British scientist and then um, really came of age in like the 1940s and uh, early 50s. Um, And she actually through this, she was a a physical chemist um, and she used this process called X-ray crystallography, which is really taking X-rays of microscopic atomic particles um, and then using those images to derive a structure to understand what the the composite um, parts of that tiny, tiny um, substance really are. and she used this technique um, over a period of years to come up with the structure of DNA. She's the one who discovered that DNA was a double helix. Um, and, you know, that her understanding of what it was comprised of, how it was structured, how it replicated um, really is the, the oh gosh, it's really the foundation of modern day genetics and so many other things. Um, she discovered this in a, a lab in King's College and unbeknownst to her, her research and her image, this famous image in particular called Photograph 51, um, were taken by her colleague um, and shown to two gentlemen working, to other scientists working at Cambridge. And those three gentlemen won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of DNA and she did not. And she ultimately, without giving too much of a spoiler because it's well-known, she developed ovarian cancer from the x-rays that she used to make her discovery. So she actually sacrificed herself for this world-changing discovery and didn't get any credit. Uh.
1: Sorry. Kind of People watching line. this it's will see Jill story. and I, like at the same time have the same reaction, like the light bulb went off. We're both like, oh, I mm-hmm. know who those men are. Oh yes. no.
2: Watson, oh. Crick and Wilson. Yeah. I mean, look, they're famous. I mean, those three are famous. Um, it's, it's really, it, it's an amazing story of like a strong, tenacious, flawed woman who was determined um, to really make these discoveries and, and would really stop at nothing. But it also is really a, a look at, this very, um, uh, I don't, I don't wanna call it flawed as well, but it, it was at that time a very flawed scientific system um, that allowed for this marginalization of her contributions to happen, both at the time and in the years to follow. And what's interesting about it, um, and I, it's, it's not something I can write in the book, but it's, I'm going to write like a really long author's note, I think, for it. You know, when you think about your your sources, um, there really isn't a lot about um, that uh, that Rosalind left behind. There's some family letters which they don't really share, but got, really were formed the basis of this one particular biography. Um, the reason that Rosalind Franklin is known at all is because um James Watson, who was one of the men who won the Nobel Prize wrote a biography about the discovery and he painted her in the most appalling light. And that book gave rise to another biography by a woman named Anne Sayers, who was a friend of um, Rosalind. So in many ways, her book is kind of like a biography and kind of like, it's almost like original source material because she's recounting stuff from letters and conversations that rose up in response to this depiction that Watson made. Mm. And then two other biographies came out. So you have these competing biographies of a woman, all of which um, tell us so much about the men who used her information, their guilt, the scientific system that they lived in at the time. Um, And in their defensiveness, they're telling us so much about their guilt and what they actually did. So it's actually fascinating. The more I did the research, the more I, I, you know, I almost want to invite people to read some excerpts from these biographies just to see what, see what they're dealing with. And, and there, it really reflects what Rosalind was dealing with.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, so many women today still deal with, so I can't get away from the science, right? I'm always, even though I'm not a scientist,
0: I'm always back with the science. I don't know. Well, no, I think that makes sense. I think, you know, that is what we talk, even now, like women in STEM are at a disadvantage and not represented. So I feel like there's probably a lot of stories that you can find in the sciences.
2: So many. And so what's interesting is, you know, when I give, when I could give talks in the, the world at large, I would often, especially when I was talking about the only woman in the room or the other Einstein, which really have a science focus. So many women came up and shared their own personal stories with me. And, you know, it's, it was sort of in those conversations that I, I really understood how historical fiction really allows us to recognize things about our society and ourselves, which would have been very hard. Like some of these women told me that if they had read you know, uh, a memoir about a modern day scientist, it wouldn't have hit them in the same way that something that has that perspective of time and when things are really thrown into bold relief. So um, this is about as bold relief as you can get. It's crazy. So it's, uh, but she was um, an amazing woman. She really was.
1: So we're almost out of time, but before we go, can you tell everyone when they can get the Mr. and Mrs. Christie and where they can get it and all of that good stuff so they know. Because the book isn't out yet, but we want to do this on 12-3 because of the special date. So can you give everyone all that good detail?
2: You guys are the best. First of all, I just want to say thank you for being a fabulous duo that you are and having me back every year for our annual event. We love love you. Yes,
0: And I'll be back. If you
2: have me, I'll be back. And hopefully it'll be in person by this time next year. Oh my
0: gosh, I hope
2: even if we're socially distanced in person across a yeah. field Yeah, okay.
1: across a field. Uh,
2: yeah. So, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie is available on uh December 29th, Tuesday, um in any possible fashion you can think about. Um you can order it at your indie bookstore, we, you can listen to it, you can, you know, e-read it anywhere. Um you can get it on at Barnes & Noble, any bookstore anywhere um, and any format you can think about. So I'm, I hope that, um, that people enjoy it, that it kind of fuels, gives them a fresh look at Agatha Christie and her books, and that you can kind of see her in there. Um, and also a fresh look at, the, at what women were dealing with during the time period that she wrote these books. And if they pre-order, I do want to say this because I think it's so cool. My publisher um, has uh, is doing a giveaway for people who pre-order and submit it. They they specially made a lipstick for like um for the launch. That's fun. It, it is a lipstick which um you've seen the cover. She's wearing like a, a like a very nineteen twenties red lipstick, mm-hmm. and guess what they named it? Red herring. Oh, that's fabulous. Oh, good. Great. Great. I love it. So not to push the pre-orders or anything, but this is probably a limited red herring opportunity.
0: Bye guys. Thank you so much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald, and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com.
1: Bonjour.